Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's, it's a letter. It's an occasional letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote for a specific occasions for circumstances that were going on inside of the church in a city named Corinth. It's in the New Testament in, in your Bible, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you get those uh, to those, just keep on going and you'll run into 1 Corinthians eventually. So and we're going to be in chapter 5. The series that we're in right now is called Saints in Society. Saints in Society. And the reason that we titled this series Saints in Society is because one of the favorite New Testament uh, words for the church is actually saints. And what it is to be a saint is actually uh, to be set apart or to be holy before God. And so saint or sainthood is not something that you work toward to arrive at. Um, it, it's a position that God has given you by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is really important because we have what's called positional holiness or positional righteousness, which means that the moment that, that, that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we are made and declared righteous and holy and set apart in that moment. You will never become more righteous and holy than you are, and you don't earn it, you don't gain it, you don't do anything to maintain it. It's declared you become a saint in that moment. You don't do works to become a saint. What we're going to look at today is what it looks like to practice from that uh, spot of positional righteousness or holiness. And so we have positional holiness and we have practical holiness, what it looks like to live into that. So we're going to be looking at that today. We just finished 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, and, and, and the big focus on that was the saints' unity in society. We looked at how Paul could have addressed a, 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 just a multitude of things that was going on in the city of Corinth. They were known for their corruption, for their moral corruption and a lot of stuff, but Paul, the apostle, found it of utmost importance to address unity inside of the church first. So that's what Paul did. He addressed unity in the first four chapters, showing how the gospel has to be central to everything we do inside of the church. It has to be the very center and focal part, uh, focal part of our lives, point of our lives, or else something else is going to take the centerpiece. And then what we're getting into now is, starting in chapter 5, is the saint's morality in society. Probably why, not super popular, just going to throw that out there. But what we believe is that we don't cherry pick sections and topics in the Bible that we like, but we actually believe that we're called to preach through the whole counsel of God's Word. And so we, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians. We're going to do that. Now we're going to look at what it looks like uh, to talk about the saints' morality in society and why that's important. So we went from unity to now morality. And so again, saints doesn't change. We, we, we have that that's declared to us, that's given to us. It is a gift. And now what does it look like to live in that in unity and now in morality. That's what we're getting into today. And so um, <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few things that I think that we have working against us is that I would say that the majority of people that are not a part of the Christian world, and so if you're here and you're investigating Christianity or you're here and you would hold to a title of agnostic or, or atheist, is that oftentimes even inside of Christianity, there's a total, complete misunderstanding of what the message of the Bible is. We see this in Richard Dawkins, renowned atheist. This is his quote. I believe it's on the, on the we have a slide for it. There you go. Do you really mean to tell me the only reason you try to be good is to gain God's approval and reward or to avoid his disapproval and punishment. 
It's Richard Dawkins. He's a renowned atheist. So his understanding as he's attacking Christianity would be we do what we do to try to gain God's approval or do what we do so that we avoid his punishment. It's a complete and total misunderstanding of what Christianity is. We don't gain God's approval. We cannot gain God's approval. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right before God. He goes on to say, and this is what Christians say morality is, and we'd say that's not our understanding of morality and why we are immoral. When Scripture calls us to morality, it's because of what we've been given in God. We're not being moral to get God's acceptance or approval or to avoid His punishment. We live lives of holiness and we live lives of morality because of what's been declared and given to us in Christ. And so that's, that is something that we have working against us in our society that, that we at least need to recognize and address. The other thing that we have working against us, I would say this, I probably needed a month to prepare for this sermon, not a week coming off of last week and diving into this. And, and, and so here's what I would say. Um, uh, some, some big influencers of today's uh, sermon, so if I don't cite them at, at the right point or right time or give them the uh, proper credit, would be Tim Keller and Lynn Jacobson. So Tim Keller does not go here. Lynn Jacobson does. Uh, and she's with us this morning. The reason why it's such a big thing is because of all we have working against us in our society. We are Westerners. We are Americans. And because of that, what happens with that is we have a very individual, something. We have a society of individualism. And so what we do and, 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 what, and how we see ourselves is in this light of being an individual in society. And that is a very different from an Eastern way of thinking. If you uh, talk to many Asians or Africans and the things that we would say would be really confusing to them. And so we, we, we are coming at this, and oftentimes what, what we do is we bring a lot of our cultural narrative into the text. And so I think it's going to be important for us again to, re, in a sense, re-intro what's going on in Corinthians, but also be historical to understand what the culture and what the context is of Corinth so we have an understanding of what's going on there and why Paul is, 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 is expressing such urgency and why there's such just this passion inside of uh, Paul's voice uh, with how he's uh, even writing and conveying this. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. That's all we're covering today as we kind of reintro this more, uh, section on morality and try to see that this, the main point, the saint's corporate concern. If you're a note taker, that's going to be it, the main point, the saint's corporate concern. In other words, uh, Life and things in life are bigger than just ourselves. We are part of a community that is bigger than just ourselves. The things that we do, the decisions that we make, is bigger than just ourselves. And so we're going to look at the saint's corporate concern. Read with me. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let, who, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts to receive. I pray that we would see your word and your law as a good thing. I pray that we would treasure your word because we treasure the one who's given us your word. I praise you that you're a God who speaks and we pray you would speak this morning. 
Father, I pray that in the, in the areas of our lives where we just need to be convicted and transformed, I pray you would do that, the power and the work of your Holy Spirit. In the areas of our lives uh, where we are believing something contrary to what the gospel is, correct us and show us the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Slow us down. Help us to listen. Clear our minds from everything going on in and around our lives so we can take this time to hear from you. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Main point again, the saints' corporate concern. So, as I said, we're going to look again at what Corinth, uh, where is Corinth and what, what is going on in Corinth and why Paul would even write this letter. Corinth was a city located in Greece. And it was actually located on this uh, little strip of land that actually divided northern and southern Greece. And so it, it was a four-mile strip. And so Corinth was actually located in that. So it was a port town because it connected two bays. Um, two seas. So instead of the uh, people traveling around uh, the southern part of the peninsula, they would actually take their boats and travel across the land, which was a four-mile strip. It was actually more efficient, it was, and, and it was a lot safer for sailors to do that than it was to go around the southern part of the peninsula because it was just a treacherous territory. With that, it became a travel town. It became a place where travelers would be coming through. They would be buying, selling, and trading. A big thing in, in Corinth was prostitution because there was a temple there to where you could go and, and, and have sex with one of the temple prostitutes in, in a form of worship to the goddess of that temple. Uh, and so that was a big thing. There was a phrase and there was a saying uh, to, to be like a Corinthian. And so that was a saying amongst the culture back then is you didn't want to be known as being like a, uh, a Corinthian. So it was known for being a place of moral corruption. So that's what's going on. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Paul, an apostle, travels there and he brings the gospel there and people put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And so now they become saints because of this message of the gospel, the good news. But what is going on now is that there's this tension that's happening in Corinth where, where yes, they are saints. They're declared righteous and holy before God, but they're still struggling to look a lot like the world. And so there's this back and forth tension that's going on. And so Paul is somewhere else at this point. He's been here for 18 months and now he's elsewhere, but he's hearing these reports. And so he gets these reports. And then what he does is he writes this letter called 1 Corinthians to address the things that uh, the, the things that have been reported to him. And so that's what we get. That's why he's fighting for unity, but that is also why he's addressing what he's addressing now. You have to understand, they did not have emails, they did not have text messaging, they did not have phone calls. As Lynn said, Paul had one chance to write a letter that was so pointed with such urgency to where when he addressed it and it was read out loud to the congregation, they would say, okay, it is clear. Paul means business. Paul is addressing something serious. We see in verse 1 what he's addressing. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So they're right, right away. Incest is going on inside of Corinth. And we know from the previous four chapters they were, they were very prideful. So they're boasting. But they're not boasting about this man's sin and what he's doing, but they're actually boasting in spite of it. And Paul's like, you're arrogant, verse 2. And you're arrogant, you're prideful, yet this is going on inside of the community. And so they're actually just complicit about what's going on inside of the community. How do, what, what, what don't we know? We don't know a lot. We don't know a lot about the man. We don't even know his name. We don't know a lot about the woman other than the fact that she's a non-believer. We know that. We can draw that from verse 12 because this whole section is talking about that. And in verse 12, Paul says, 
For what have I uh, to do with judging outsiders? Uh, it is not those, uh, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so Paul's addressing that, hey, I'm, I, I'm talking to this man, I'm talking to you guys. So we know that she's not a believer. What else do we know? That it was, we know that it was his, um, that it was his stepmom. How do we know that? From a few scriptures that we'll pull up. One is Leviticus 18, 7 through 8. I'm going to cover a lot of Old Testament passages today, so they'll be up on the screen so you guys can see it there. But uh, Leviticus 18, 7 through 8 says this, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Look at verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. A different word than mother. Paul would have been extremely familiar with the Torah because he had it memorized and likely a good portion of the Old Testament. So he, if, if it would have been the mother, the biological mother, there would have been a distinction in, in Scripture. Paul's super familiar. It is your father's nakedness. And so what we do know here and it, it, is that it is a non-believing stepmother of this son. We don't know why they're having the relationship. We don't know if dad's still alive. We don't know all those dynamics, but we do know this. And we also know that Scripture clearly condemns this. And here's the thing. Not just Scripture condemns incest. Actually, Josephus said that, that, that incest is the grossest of all sins. That's what jo Josephus said. But also, the Roman government would actually deport you to another island for incest. They actually viewed it. And that's why Paul's like, this isn't even tolerated among pagans. You would be deported for, for incest. In other words, it would be like, it would be like us doing something that, that Hollywood's rated R or X movies would say, oh no, like, we, we won't do that or we won't do that, but yet Christians are like perfectly cool with it. It would be to that extreme that, that Paul's like, not, not even... Not even the, the Romans, not even pagans are okay with what you guys are doing. But Paul is not drawing from Roman society. He's not drawing. He's drawing where he gets his moral absolutes from, he, where he gets his morality from, which we need to establish. Where do we get our morality from? If you're here and you're non-Christian, I would ask you that. Where does your morality come from? For a Christian, we would say our morality we get from the Word of God. And we see in Leviticus 20.11 this, that if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. In um, next passage, Deuteronomy 27.20. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people will, uh, shall say amen. Again, in Deuteronomy 2.30. A man shall take his father's wife so that he does not uncover... A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. So we see like Paul's just not pulling this out of thin air. He's using what we would say, man, it seems like really extreme language to have him removed and then we're going to look at it next week where, where he says turn him over to Satan. What does all this mean? Why is there such urgency among, in Paul's voice? Where is he getting this from? This is, this is given from God's law which has always been the same from a God who never changes. And so when, when we say that we need to have uh, the saints corporate concern, I would say first of all, what we can draw from the text is that we need to have the saints corporate concern for holiness. Okay? Again, people will yell, amen, preach the socks off of grace. I, you're talking to a guy that loves grace and struggles with rules. But, I am sum, submitted and committed to the Word of God as my rule and as my authority. 
And I believe that a clear understanding of grace and of God's love and, and, and His unconditional love that, 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 is, that is given to us through Christ's merits, not our own, leads to a life of concern for holiness. Again, I don't think that when we talk about holiness and morality, we need to have a me and God mindset. And, I, and I'm afraid... In all reality, that's what we have whenever we think about holiness or whenever we think about morality. Our instant mindset is me and God. I know that because I've talked to people before about things that they're doing inside of their life and I've been met with this. What I'm doing right now is between me and God. And I've been told that. And in all reality, with the decisions that many people even in this room would make in their lives and many people are making, if confronted on them, they would say, well, I think that's just between me and God, don't you? Who are you? And honestly, I had the same way of thinking for a while. So, let me unpack my dating relationships with you guys. It's not good. When I started following Jesus at the age of 23, uh, there was a girl who was in my life at, at the time, and we hung out every day together. And, and I think I've shared some of this with people in our gospel community and throughout our community. We hung out every day together. In one-on-one settings, we, we, we talked about the Lord, we talked about Jesus, um, but, but we weren't dating. We would like ride four-wheelers together, one four-wheeler. We would, we would play basketball together. We'd do a lot of stuff. And then uh, she told me, she was like, yeah, I, I made a commitment to the Lord. I can't date anyone for two years. And I was like, okay. Uh, I like you, and, and I was like, do you like me? And she's like, I do. And I was like, and we hang out together every day, one-on-one. -on -one. What are we doing? And she's like, I don't know, it's just not dating. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, so already I'm like, this following Jesus relationship thing is going to be weird because this was my first <laughs> introduction I had with dating or hanging out, not dating, someone who was a Christian. So this is where it started for me. So I just thought, this is weird. Then... Over the next five years, I only went on a couple more dates. And I went on one date. Uh, these were blind dates. I went on one date, and my question was like, do they love God? And they're always like, well, yeah, they believe in God. And so I went on the date, and it was a couple's date, and I went on it. And throughout the night, I could just tell this person did not love Jesus, and it just wasn't going to work out. So I told the girl who set it up the next day, and we were hanging out with her and her husband on this date. I was like, hey, I just... I." I don't feel or see the connection. I don't think it's going to work out. And she told me this. She's like, well, that's, that's good. That's okay. Because I actually set the date up so you and I could spend more time together. Yeah, that was, that was my response. And so uh, I was like, wow. Uh, okay. And then I went on another date. And this woman turned out to uh, also be married. My wife knows I'm telling these stories. I got her permission this morning. It's a good thing. She was married as well. And uh, she dropped that bomb on me. Never wore a ring. Nothing like this. And so, why do I share this? My response to her and my response at that time was, you put my character in jeopardy. Like, the only thing that I cared about at that time was that was my character. Like, you were going to make me look bad. And I, I, I even remember telling her, like, 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 you, you, will, you will crush my character inside of this community in the town that I was living in. I'm like, why, why, why would you do this? Why would you not share anything like this with me? I was, I was, I was so mad. 
that my poor wife, at the time I took her on our first date, I was like, two questions. <laughs> not, I'm not kidding, you can ask her. I was like, how do you know you're a Christian? And it's like so intense, she said, and she was like, whoa, she had a mouthful of food. But I was like, we're gonna establish that. I never asked, had to ask her the second one, are you married? But that was gonna be my new questions for people because of what I experienced and, and, and what I went through. The only thing that I thought through in my life, because here's what I had, and here's why I share this. I had a very isolated Christianity. I've shared this with you guys. When, when, when I started following Jesus, I thought I was like the cream of the crop, like, like the, I, I was it. I was awesome, and I isolated myself and spent a lot of time by myself, and, 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 and I grew extremely self-righteous. So I'm going to say that holiness is not just adhering to um, external action. So we'll get to that later. I became really self-righteous. Now what I would understand this is that anything that I do in my life now doesn't just impact me or have a bearing on my life. It actually has a bearing on the community that I am a part of. Again, this is different from a Western versus an Eastern way of thinking. There's a lady named uh, Gish Jin, and she actually wrote a, uh, a, a story basically about the, some of the differences because she's an Asian American, but she talked about some of her culture um, that she grew up with and some of the culture she's experiencing now. And she talked about independence, uh, independency versus interdependency. And here's one of the things that she said. Is in a Western culture, everything revolves around what you do. Your success, your job, your, your, your pursuits, everything that you do. She said this struck her big time when she read her father's autobiography. And she said it, she, he didn't even mention himself until the eighth page. That's when his birthday was mentioned, and it was mentioned in parentheses. That everything up until that was about the culture that he grew up in and about the generations before that and what's led up to that. When we tell our story, hi, my name is Rick Reeves. I was born on June 24th, 1983. And here's the thousands of baby pictures my family has in me. Now, I, I, I'm not knocking everything I'm going to say at the end of this that I don't think our response is to abandon anything that looks like individualism or, or that, that, uh, that we adopt purely this communal type response because the gospel is going to be the response I'm going to advocate for. But I think we have a lot of that meism and individualism going into a lot of these conversations about morality so that when we approach a text like this that's hard to read, and we see Paul's urgency, it's because he understands morality is not just about you and God. Your morality and a concern for holiness is actually more of a corporate concern. Where, where would Paul get this from? Where does he draw this from? Let's look through some of this. In the Old Testament... We have a few passages. We have one in Joshua 7.11. I would actually encourage you guys to go back and read some of these for yourself. But in Joshua 7.11, it says this, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Fascinating, right? That's what Israel's done. Go back and read the story. One guy did this. His name was Achan. One guy sins against God and he takes the things that were, devo that, that were supposed to be devoted for destruction and he takes them and he pulls them inside. He doesn't tell anyone and he takes them and he buries them in their tent. But when God addresses the nation of Israel, how does he address them? 
Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have commanded him. They have taken some of the devoted things. There's, so our understanding of sin between me and God is actually not a biblical thing. It's not just a me and God. It's actually, we see throughout the Old Testament, sin has a far bigger impact than that. We, we, we get to the book of Jonah, and look at Jonah 1.12. Jo- Jonah tells the, uh, the mariners, the sailors, he, says, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah says, I know that it's because of what I've done that you guys are suffering this wrath right now from God. It wasn't just something that's between me and God. Daniel, read the entire passage. I would encourage you, Daniel 9, 3-19. through For right now, we will just look at this. What we can conclude from, from, from Scripture is that Daniel looked like a pretty righteous guy. But yet when he prays, notice that Daniel doesn't pray like we often pray. God, I confess my sins to you. I confess this, that I did this, that I did this. Notice how Daniel prays. And we see this throughout the Old Testament with how the priest actually prayed for the people. We also see it in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's not always forgive me of my sins. But look at Daniel. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. So first, Paul has this passion for the saints' corporate concern for holiness. That yes, we should be concerned for an individual holiness, but we should also be concerned for a corporate holiness. That the things that we do actually matter. The things that we do affect our community. One of the coolest things that I've heard from a young man in our community, his name is Nathan On, and he works for the church, is we do quarterly re- reviews. And during his quarterly review, he's asked for goals. And he's asked for even personal goals. But one of the things that he communicated to me is that... Uh, um, he, he feels, uh, in a sense, weight, but not an unhealthy sort of weight. He said that what he recognizes now is that he represents the community and the family of Gospel Community Church, and he wants to be a good ambassador for that community. That the things that he does now and the life that he lives isn't just him, but it's actually, a model, uh, 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 in, in a sense, impacts the community and puts the community on display. The saints' corporate concern for holiness. Our other problem is that we have a very diminished view of sin. We don't like the word sin. If you want to get so unpopular as a pastor, say the word sin from a pulpit lots of times because our culture does not like to talk about it. We have diminished it because if we can diminish sin and we can decrease God's holiness, then we can get God closer to us and that we only need a small few tweaks in our life, and then basically we can become God. And what we don't need ever is Jesus. If you have this sort of view, then let me say this. The gospel will never be good news, but only decent news. And grace will never be amazing. It'll be decent grace at best. The, 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 the magnitude of God's holiness, how far we've missed the mark, is bridged by the cross of Jesus Christ and what He's reconciled to us. Jesus gets big, not as we diminish sin, which we've done in our culture. Examples, like I said, I'm giving a lot of examples to try to set this up to see what we have working. Is a couple big ones. Is sex before marriage, just so you know, is everywhere in our culture today. It just, it really is. I was watching Toy Story 3 last night with, with our family. Family movie night every Saturday evening. Toy Story 3 was on. 
uh, Ken asked Barbie to move in. Like, they just met. Maybe you guys have seen it. But Ken's like, come live with me in, in my mansion. And she's like, okay. And that happens. <laughs> He's like, I know you don't know me. but And that's, that's normal. That's, that's a show that's going out in front of our kids. But it is, it is pretty rare not to see any show and see people so-called test driving the car or living together, doing that stuff before marriage. That's become a normal part of our culture. So much so that when we see it, we don't think twice about it. The other thing is sin. As I said, it's not a popular word, so we've replaced the word sin with mistakes. One of my favorite pastors who's written books that are on my bookshelves that I would now not recommend to people fell from ministry because of adultery, and when he wrote his letter, it bothered me so bad. Because I know what to do when people say, man, I've sinned and I've just blown it. Just bring them in, give them a hug, and say, I understand. When he wrote his letter, he said, I, I, I made a few mistakes. Like, mistakes? I don't think so. But instead of saying sin, he can minimize it and write the word mistakes in instead. And I think that's what we do. We, we, we try to minimize it. I think what we can do is we can have a negative view of God's law and just a negative view of holiness. There's this popular saying by a pastor who I'm not going to debate against because I would get crushed. But he says that, um, that marriage isn't about happiness, it's about holiness. I agree to some degree. The problem with that phrase is this, that what, what, when you say something like that, you make it seem like happiness is the antithesis to uh, um, um, holiness or that those things are at odd. When actually, you, if you read, I think we have a slide for it, Matthew 8, it says, blessed, we have that slide? Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, they, what does it say? For they shall see God. You know what blessed means? Happy. Happy are the pure in heart. You know that holiness doesn't lead to a mundane, boring life of no excitement? Actually, holiness leads according to God's Word, to more excitement, to more happiness. But we see holiness as this ugh thing inside of our culture. And in a lot of ways, we can start to see God's law like that. And we can say, well, Paul didn't like God's law. That is so not true. Look at Romans 7.12 and look at Galatians 3.10. Romans 7.12 and Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. This is Galatians. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So pause. People go, see, there you go. The law, not good. Cursed. But that's not what Paul's saying. Look at Romans 7.12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Go back to Galatians. Here's what Paul is saying. The law in its rightful place is holy and good, but if we understand the law appropriately, then we understand that we can't fulfill God's holy and righteous law, which is why we need Christ. But Christ didn't come in and say, hey, I've abrogated the law. It's gone. It sucks or anything like that. That is, that is not what Christ said. He came in and said, hey, not one ounce of this law is going to be changed. In, in fact, I fulfilled the law. I did what you can't do. I lived the life of perfect obedience to God's good law. And now I've empowered you by fulfilling it to go and live a life of holiness. The saints have to have a corporate understanding of how good God's law is and a corporate concern for our holiness. And to actually see holiness is a good thing. What else do we have working against us? Let me just give some examples. We talked about this earlier. 
But oftentimes, we are defined in our culture by what you do for a living. In the Bible, we don't see that. This is, this is Simon Bar-Jonah. You were more affiliated by being a son of the family that you came from. And so we see this, that even from birth, this is who you are, and then you are defined now by the work that you do. But here's the thing. For, for so long, work was never something that was meant to define us. Work and sex, let's use both of those. Work and sex were actually used because work was given, a vocation was given so we could use this job to love and serve and build up our family. And sex was given so that a man and a woman could, 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 could build up their family and enjoy it. But now, what is work and sex? They are where we as a culture seek our identity. And that's where we start to arrive at a text on morality through this worldview of being an individual and that's it. Television has done that. It's in a way, I'm, I'm not knocking television, just said I watched a movie last night. But it can just keep us isolated and in our own world. Work, as I said, I, you can hear millennials quite often talk about, oh, I'm just not happy with my work and my work's not satisfying me, my potential's not seen, I want to do something where I can be a little bit more recognized and I have more potential growth, I don't like my supervisor, but at the same time, what was God's command? Love God and love your neighbor. What if work was seen as a means to love God and love your neighbor? What are other examples that sin's just not me and God? Let me give three. Pornography. This is one of the things where people will say, hey, what I look at on, on a screen is just between me and God, and I would say, that's not true. <laughs> when you objectify women, and when you pay into that system, what you are doing is paying into a system that is also destroying another one of your brother in Christ's life, or even your son's life one day through pornography. So it's a much bigger than you when you are even clicking on a screen and helping support that. You are keeping a business thriving, again, that can have an incredible impact, a devastating impact on your family one day and on other families. And here's the thing. I have talked to people, have sat with people who have had secret porn addictions for 10, for 20, and 25 years, and guess what? Their sin never, ever just impacted them. I know I sat with a guy and he said, my marriage is destroyed. Because for 20 years... I kept this hidden from my wife, and it all came out. Greed, that's another thing. I talk to people, what I do with my time and money, that's between me and God. No, your, your, your greed absolutely has an impact on community. It has a, an impact on the community that you're with. If you view your time as only, this is my time, this is my money, this is me, this is mine, that is going to impact it. But hey, so does, so does this. Adultery? has a greater impact. Sexual immorality has a greater impact on the community. It's not something just between you and God. Talk to anyone who's gone through it. So when Paul says this stuff and, and, and he arrives at a text and as we get in, in the weeks to come and he has this urgency in his voice and he's talking this, this is heavy, weighty stuff because Paul understands this. It was never intended to be seen that your sin is just between you and God and you can just do whatever you want with your life. But he was trying to show that what you were doing actually impacts your community. Last, we'll say this. 
that as we see in verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. Again, they're, they're arrogant in spite of what's going on. Ought you not rather to mourn? That word mourn, every time of the six times it is used in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, it is all about repentance. In the New Testament, it is actually about grieving someone's death. So why would Paul say that? He says, instead of actually watching your brother and boasting, he says you should actually be repenting. You yourselves for being complicit and not doing anything, and you should actually be grieving over this because it's actually going to lead to your brother's destruction. But instead, the only thing you do is boast. It is thought by commentators, by scholars, that, that maybe the, the reason uh, they didn't do anything about this is because of their fear of man. Because this guy was giving them social status. Because he had a lot of money. Because he was providing for them. And so they weren't going to address them. So instead of actually loving this man, they loved what this man could do for them instead. And so, in fact, there wasn't a corporate concern for one another's holiness. There was only a concern for their own individual lives. In the book of Hebrews, which is basically an, a commentary on the Old Testament, do you know what the response is by the author oftentimes? Is don't neglect to meet with one another. Be in community. Exhort one another daily. Why? So that you don't fall into sin. As we approach this topic of morality, you have to see that Paul's not talking to an individual. He wrote to a church. He's talking to a church to say, this is a corporate effort. Holiness is. It's not just you and God. You pursue holiness. When you read your Bible, when you pray, when you do stuff, you're actually doing it to build others up inside of the community. But what you need is to look out for one another. Lynn Jacobson gave this analogy that, uh, that they, they had a baby calf break out, and they've had this happen multiple times. And when the calf broke out and they finally got the calf back, that, that it ran into the herd and then the rest of the herd circled around it so that it could nurse. What was, what was happening? They were, they were protecting and making sure that the calf could be nurtured. And what we have to do for one another is protect one another, especially those that are young in Christ. And Paul is saying that by doing the stuff that you're doing, here's the thing, you're going to lose God's blessing. Pause. Anytime I say God's blessing, people think of monetary things going to lose their job, going to lose something like that. Again, that's an individual way of thinking. Believe that the way we lose God's blessing is to see God's law and say thanks, but no thanks. And then know that God's law was good and it's actually set up for the way we could have a good life. God wasn't trying to suck joy from our lives when he gave the law. But also, I think what Paul is saying, uh, could, could be saying is the blessing that we could lose is when a community gets destroyed, that was your blessing. God's blessing was that he didn't just purchase an individual. He purchased a family for you to be a part of. And when we just let morality run rampant or just do whatever we want, that is going to impact the community and, and, and that will have a devastating effect and the blessing of relationships can be removed. So where do we go from this? You know that when we went to pick songs today for this week that we struggled to find songs that didn't just say I the entire time in them? That we struggled to find songs that actually were about we and about us and about our? Even a lot of the normal songs that are written in a Christian community are all about me. How does the gospel influence this today? I would say this. Two things. The gospel is not... Being an individual or 
just only seeing yourself as an individual. It is something bigger than that. When, when, when Christ redeems you and purchases you, he makes you, as Ephesians 2 says, a saint and a citizen and a member of the household of God. And so if, if, if we live our lives constantly having to prove ourselves and our inner worth through our inner mor- um, morality and through our feelings of what we want and what we need, we change weekly, yearly, and everything like that. We need someone outside of us who's greater than us to esteem us and to admire us. Otherwise, we will always seek to try to be admired in, in, in every context that we enter in life. We will try to be esteemed, but when someone greater than us esteems us and admires us, makes us beautiful, makes us glorious, makes us holy and makes us righteous apart from what we do, then what that actually does is free us to go into community and not have to prove ourselves and prove our own worth. And here's the thing, inside of a Christian community, we're all given spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts are not given so that you can try to prove your worth and prove your spiritual gifts. They were a gift like grace was for your life. So when in this world you have to use your talents and your gifts to prove yourself to be a part of the community and we recognize that we come to a Christian community without having to prove ourselves because Christ has proven us worthy and then what we also realize we're given gifts that we're actually not meant to prove ourselves but to build up one another. For those of you guys too and the reason I said that, that it's not find your identity in communities maybe you grew up in, in, in more of an Eastern culture and family can be oppressive because in that context, what you can do is, is hear the words, never do anything to shame and dishonor your family. Because the most important thing in the world is this family's legacy in the context of community. And we need to have a good appearance. Maybe that's how you grew up. So you never talk about sin. You never talk about anything that's going on in the family. You just have to uphold a certain appearance. And to that, I would say, is you don't have to be a part of a family to have worth. You don't have to be a part of a gospel community to have worth. In fact, Christ gives you full worth and he gives you a family with other people that, that say this, or that we're free to say this. We're all screw-ups and we're all mess-ups. We, we, we arrive by grace, we are kept by grace. And now, we can live pursuing holiness out of this. It's not about an appearance to be maintained and be kept up. The reason that we pursue holiness is because Christ has made his bride beautiful and so we live out of that beauty. And as Mark said, we put it on display for the world to see. Close with this. If I was going to say what, 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 I, what I would hope that you would take away from this is this. Is as we approach the topic of morality in weeks to come, is that you would start to see the things that you are doing in your private life are actually impacting the body of believers. Our complicity, whatever it is that we do, are doing is actually having a greater impact. I'm going to read this prayer. Jared Wilson said this, that we've changed the Lord's Prayer to look more like this. Myself on earth, awesome is my name. My success come and my will be done. Give me lots of things I want but I don't need. Don't even think about debt unless it's someone else's. Don't worry about giving in to temptation because you deserve it. Deliver me from guilt anyway. 
For this life is mine and this world revolves around me. Amen. Jared Wilson says, sadly, that's in a lot of ways what we've done. What I would encourage us today is, is, is to leave with this. As, as we sing this song, I'll invite the band up now, lay it all down. My prayer and heart is this, is that we would lay our sin down, that we would walk in repentance, but that we would walk in great faith, that when we realize that we walk to the table and take communion, that we walk to the table with other saints, that we celebrate the one thing in common, that Jesus took our shame and dishonor on Himself on the cross to make us honorable in the sight of God. That there's no more shame and guilt to bear for our sins, but as we walk to the table, we realize we're not walking there by ourselves. And the things that we do on a daily basis impact the other people that are part of our family. As we sing the song, Lay It All Down, I, I pray that we would just take a moment to even do that. To lay down the things that we are doing and, and maybe our selfish thoughts or ways that we live without seeing the way that we're impacting others. Lay this, those things down at the feet of Jesus. But in that, celebrate the fullness of His grace and His mercy for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love and grace. Thank You that You've called us to be a part of a community. I thank You that holiness is not discontent, but actually holiness leads to happiness. I pray that we would trust you and trust your word and trust your love. In Jesus' name, amen.